Welcome to the InfoQ Culture Podcast. My name is Shane Hasty, and I'm the lead editor for Culture and Methods at InfoQ.com. At the recent Agile 2016 conference, I sat down with a group of leading minds, Steve Denning, Ray Arell, Todd Little, Henrik Esser, and Steve Hollier, and asked them the hard question, is Agile still Agile? Gentlemen, I'll ask you to introduce yourselves to the audience, if you may. Steve, can we start with you? Uh, Steve Denning. I write for Forbes and uh, about uh, agile management and how this is transforming the world of uh, work. Ray Arell, uh, with a company called New Cognitive, a consulting company that's actually looking at how to do large enterprise transformations. Uh, Todd Little with uh, Accelanova, a uh, consulting company, and formerly with uh, held executive roles at uh, IHS as Vice President of Product Development. Hendrik Esser, I'm working for Ericsson, one of these giant companies who have uh, been undergoing an agile transformation. Steve Hollier, I'm an independent agile coach, trainer, consultant in Europe, passionate about finding agile that works, really works. Great, thank you, gents. Um, now, I gather that you met each other on a, uh, a panel at the recent Agile Europe conference, which was uh, dealing with the, the question, is Agile still Agile? Would you like to give me a, a, a quick response to that question? I think we, we all came to the, uh, the, that session with a uh, surprise consensus that uh, agile is is about mindset and that uh, it is being corrupted by an approach which puts more emphasis on tools and processes in contravention really of the main thrust of the agile manifesto and so there was a risk that uh, agile was no longer uh, becoming agile and uh, we collectively suggested we should get back to the agile as uh, as outlined and, uh, and prescribed in the uh, in the manifesto. When you see at the Agile Alliance, for example, you see we are there to make uh, the world of work more um, productive, uh, humane, and sustainable. And when you look into many um, companies, you see productivity tick in the box, humane question mark, <laughs> sustainable two question marks. So this is the kind of, of thing we see in uh, quite a number of, of companies. Yeah. Formerly when I was with Intel, one of the, the troubling things as we were doing these large enterprise transformation of 100,000 people is that we would come across teams that were saying, yes, we're gonna go off and do our own road on Agile. Um, and then when you go in and you ask them specifically, um, what's on the values and principles of, of Agile? Could you, could you list me out the 12 principles? And very few could, in fact, read even one of them or even tell you what was on the manifesto itself. And so as we went off and talked to other companies and I gave everyone else that same test, they would clearly be able to describe to you everything about Scrum. Mm -hmm. But if I had to go step back and then say, give me one principle that's on the manifesto, they couldn't, which really is was, to me, shocking. So, so I think... Yes, a mindset, but yes, it's been so domineered between if I just do these 15 steps, so I'll, I will be agile. We have a daily stand-up meeting. Right. 
which is micromanagement from hell. Can be. And everything's everything's been entered in the tool. And and, and so it's all about, it's become, what I I think I've been seeing is is a lot of packaged implementations and for the checkbox packaged implementations of agility. And, and, you know, in some cases, some teams can benefit from that prepackaged approach, at least get some started. Uh, but the thing with agility, agility is a journey. You're never truly agile. You're, you're agile in mindset, and you're getting more and more agile. You're in a mode of continuous improvement. And um, you know, I, when I talk to some teams and, and I say, well, are they agile? And they say, well, you'll really never recognize them because, and, and that's the team that's probably the most agile of all, right? Mm-hmm. Is the one you don't recognize because that team has inspected and adapted and changed things to work for them. And they've got things working in a way that, that works for them. Uh, the ones that scare me are the ones that are very recognizable. The ones that are doing all the processes. They've got the check boxes. They can show every single check box of what they're doing, every practice, all they're doing. Yet they, as, as Ray said here, they don't know why. Right? And when you don't know why, you do stupid things. So, you know, it's all about understanding why you're doing it and getting to the heart of why. I say the same thing with, with regards to trying to understand what your product is developing. So if you don't know why you're developing that product, you're not going to develop something that, that satisfies the ultimate need. But those, those processes, those checkboxes, that's something easy for the company to measure. I mean, that's, that's what I'm seeing. Of course, I mean, that's no surprise. But, but people are creating these diagnostic checkboxes. Check off this box. Check off this box. You've got this process. Then you're agile. And the, the, the large organizations that, that I'm meeting are actually creating those checkboxes so that people can pass them. Mm-hmm. So we need a certain number of check boxes so that our managers can get the bonus at the end of the year. But, so that's that's actually why they're that's focusing the so much on the how processes. HR have you become? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. if you've yeah, got your cross-functional teams, if done. you've got your daily stand-up and your cross-functional yeah. teams and two more checks, then you make your bonus for that. Your next year, you have to check off a, a few more boxes instead of looking at. I mean, Angel's actually hard. I mean, the the, the Scrum folks say it's what simple, easy. It's it's simple. Scrum is easy, but it's not simple. Scrum is simple, but it's not easy. Or agile, mm-hmm. agile's hard. Mm-hmm. Agile's hard, and the, the, the check boxes are something easy. The mindset mm-hmm. is something that takes a little bit more work, and it's getting into the things you were talking about, Todd. I also think when, when you look at um, when agile goes wrong, um, you can really see how the stress level in the organization goes up because you can really misuse these whole things. Uh, for, for example, Traditionally, if you run traditional waterfall projects, what happens? You have uh, the beginning of the project, not so much stress on people trying to figure out what should we do. Then you get closer to the deadline. Oh, stress level goes up. Then you have a plateau because you missed the first deadline and you're now really working to make it happen. So finally you deliver and then the stress level goes down. So it was an up and down. With the Scrum, you can misuse it to have a sustainable pace yeah, or use it to have a sustainable pace. A, a decent level of, of stress in the team, uh, sustainable, but you can also push this and have a constant peak um, if, if you drive productivity up. Well, we call it a sprint. Doesn't that mean you're running really fast all yeah, the time? That's, that's a good observation. I think their language is already <laughs> showing us where this can go and um, uh, this can stress out, out people quite a lot. Yes, we also have a master <laughs> and we talk about servant leadership. Yeah, good points. <laughs> and, and that's what drives that behavior in the daily stand-up because everyone is reading their status to the master versus it being something where it's being coached. It's, it's you know, that's 
And, and these are kind of internal views of, of work, whereas think about Agile, it's, it's really a, a customer, user-driven phenomenon. Users are demanding instant, reliable, confidential, personalized responsiveness, mobile. Mm -hmm. And this is what's driving companies to implement this. So looking at those internal measures are important inputs, but the real bottom line is, are you delivering this very difficult thing that customers are demanding? And so it's not, as uh, a famous uh, subtitle of a book says, twice the work in, uh, in half the time, which is just yeah. working harder. It's twice the value uh, with half the work. It's and about doing less work, mm -hmm. but generating more value. Absolutely. This is exactly the thing we see all over the place. Um, look at how some consulting companies are advertising their efforts to support companies in becoming agile. They promise to the leaders, because those are the guys who take the decision to, yeah, we need to go agile. They pr uh, promise to the leaders that their productivity will go up. That's the main thing that resonate, that they think resonates. and. Um, this is not actually what is happening. It's the agile mindset that needs to change, and uh, there we fall short very often. I think a, a big part of that is exactly as Steve said, is that, that most companies really struggle with both their strategy and their product management. Mm -hmm. and, and Scrum and XP and other, other agile approaches have been generally been a bottom-up approach, of, which has focused more on this question of productivity, when real productivity is, is really getting your value structure in place and understanding what your strategy or your organization, what your product management approach is going to be, what problems are you really solving and what will customers pay for. And that part really, I think, again, getting back to, this, to the, how the Scrum has evolved, Scrum has this concept, okay, just create a, this magical beast called a product owner, which knows everything about all my stakeholders and filters it into, into one magical backlog that's prioritized. And it just doesn't work so easily. There's a you know, product man. We talk about agile being hard. I mean, my view is the product management is even is is the hardest part. Yet on the other hand, if you mm -hmm. get product management and strategy right, it all becomes very fluid. Mm -hmm. Everything flows really well. And and teams you don't even the teams don't even know what process they're following because they're just doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And and that's the shift of, of agility as a mindset. I think is is taking that from a bottom up checkbox approach to doing all the things and constantly improving to the point where, where we're, we're just flowing and solving the real problems. But, I think but, we, but as Steve, as you were talking about the check checkmark boxes, I, I think what we have a biggest problem is, is if you look at how a, a CEO gets measured, they're getting measured by what performance? It's the performance of stock value in, in, a, in a publicly traded company. And so when you think about, you know, I, I annually I would get a finance person sitting down with me and asking me, how do we measure the efficiency of a software engineer? You know, is that, is that you know, K-lot per hour per, you know, coffee break and all the other different things that they would go want to go equate to this to? And just as a just as a fun thing, I, I you know, and I was talking earlier about this, is I, I have this little puzzle of a of a cat, five hundred piece puzzle, and I'd throw it in the middle of the table, and I'd say, please give me an estimate of how long it's going to take you to build that five hundred piece puzzle, and then have them build it, you know. And if you do that in a group, you get all sorts of different answers associated to it. And I think the challenge is we've been looking for the holy grail of efficiency measurement forever 
But in reality is when you have something as complex as delivering something that, yeah, we know the pieces, we've worked with them, but every time we assemble them, it's going to be a varying amount of time things get delivered. And people are still demanding linear. We want that straight line, that great checklist, you know, and all those other things that just don't exist. We've, we've fallen into the the trap you're saying that's how the CEOs are measured and we fall into the trap as even the agile consult consultants and coaches of selling them that speak uh, their language speak their language yeah. and, and so we've sold them we've sold them this this twice 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 the work I think in half the time and and so they so they bought that and then they say okay where's my agile where's my half my work or yeah. twice my work in half the on time. the other hand I think there's also a bit this myth that senior executives just want to see productivity I know so many who are now especially in the face of digitalization we have so many really big shifts in our industries that a lot of executives are thinking now okay in this super complex world how can I uh, sustain with my company what can we do mm -hmm. and so I think their eyes and ears are open for new suggestions how to go about these kind of things in a different way. And, and well, yes, yes. And what I've encountered is it's the the layer of the middle management who's in that very uncomfortable situation of having all of this weight on their shoulders <laughs> to bring it in. And they're the ones that are telling me the CEOs care about the CEOs care about this type of measurement. It's the it's the mm -hmm managers in the middle that are telling me that when I'm listening to the CEOs they're actually not saying it so that's the concern of these people the, the people in the middle who have the weight feel the I don't know if they have the weight on the shoulders they feel the weight of their on their shoulders to, to bring this in that's also a question how uh, how does a organization really work and I've seen it a couple of times that people from staff units who are supporting a certain senior executive in a company from those staff units says this guy wanted it like this so you have to do it like that so f what I found out a number of times is that in many companies it's so that the, the guy has not been asking for it those people are using this status uh, to push certain things because that makes their life of course easier they just just try to fulfill their own mission yeah i, I understand that because of the the i mean they're like atlas with the world weight of the world on their shoulders and they think that so i so i understand that how do we get the weight how do we redistribute that weight to put them in the situation where they're supporting the we need to understand the puzzle and if the Agile Manifesto says that the whole point of work is to deliver value to the customer. And the top management is saying, my job and my organization is valued by the, the current stock price, um, which is basically aimed at extracting value from the corporation, not adding value to the mm -hmm. customer. Then it's the middle manager who gets caught in the middle uh, because the top manager says, well, we have to increase the stock price. And you down there, you sort out and make sure that the customer gets value. But in fact, those two goals are fundamentally opposed. Okay. And uh, until we reconcile that, we will not uh, deal with this problem. And the, the companies that are successful are those that have addressed that and realized that it's by delivering more value to the customer that we actually make a lot more shareholder value, like Apple and, mm -hmm. um, and Spotify and, and plants like that, which are totally focused on delivering value for customer and shareholder value is a result not a goal and in those companies you don't have people uh, caught in the yeah. middle because yeah. the company is aligned with what it's trying to accomplish 
One of the things that we've all said around the table here is agile is a mindset. For a lot of the people listening to this, that's fluff. Yes, that's one of those hard things. Agile is hard because it, and that's one of those narratives you hear. Mm. But you can nail mindset, I think. You can mm. say, how does agile mindset manifest in, in day-to-day yep. behavior, for example? What's so actually how happening? How do people act in the companies? Mm -hmm. So what, what does that mindset mean inside an organization? So for me, for example, is a typical thing what we hear is embrace change. Okay, oh, embrace change. But what does that actually practically mean? And, and uh, you can nail this down practically. You just need to say, okay, change means I need to understand a couple of things. First thing is predictability is simply not there. The modern world, is, it's, it's so messy, everything. All of the, the time you have uh, surprises, you need to accommodate your surprises. How can we do this properly? And when you start discussing in your companies these questions and you discuss them really seriously, you find you get to the agile mindset by just discussing these things because people are clever. And I've seen different approaches how you can um, uh, deal with uncertainty. For example, uh, at Ericsson, we have a, an approach where we say we do estimates in ranges. Yeah? Instead of fixed dates, we say uh, we have a date range. And uh, with every sprint, we do an update uh, on the range estimate. And now you can ask, uh, is estimating good or not? But okay, it helps us to see where are we. It is a possibility for the developers to express their uncertainty. And for those who have to talk to the customer, it gives them a, a, a means to say, okay, can I sort of commit now something to a customer? Can I make them happy? Or do I need to disappoint them? Are we up for a disappointment? And this is because it's updated every sprint, a possibility to see early that something is deteriorating and then you early can address your problems instead of very late. Yeah. And this is a practical manifestation of embracing change simply. But, but I think what we get hung up is the tangibles and the intangible measurement system of all of that. Because, you know, something gets delivered well, we don't know whether or not that in fact was an agile value that was at play or not. I mean, there's just at times when I've seen over the, you know, I've been doing agile transformation work for the last, you know, internally um, in my previous role for five, six years. And there was always these little glimmers that would come out that would surprise me. Like, a developer turning to another developer and saying, that's not how we do things here. We do it like this. Let me show you. I had another person who had made his own shirt, you know, not like the agile mindset one that's in here in the room, but it was, uh, it was, it said, share and learn. And the person went up to whatever the service that you get your you know, shirts from and, and made these and passed them out. And I thought to me that that was, that, that's why they were turning the corner. They were, it was, it was in the system, the, the, hur the heuristics, the patterns, the rules of thumbs that people were using to make decisions were, were, were infested by the values. Yeah, that's exactly that. Is, is, are, are the teams valuing the values? And if, they're, if that's showing up, and you, you'll see it. And it's not necessarily something that you measure, and that's the hard part, um, it, but it is an element of... You, you can't, observe you, it. You observe it and, and you sort of know it when you see it and, and observe it. And I think some of those other parts, I think a big part of it, we've had the conversation, I think Ray was talking about the people thinking in a linear world, this issue of how do you manage uncertainty. I think the big part that I see is, is an element of, of realization that, that what we're in a world where we are managing under uncertainty, 
we are not managing under certainty. And, it's a, and, and once you have that click that you're really managing under uncertainty, a lot of things change. And, and then, you know, I, I think uh, I come from oil and gas background, and oil and gas is all about managing uncertainty. And so it's natural for, and it's, we've had a long history of knowing that that's what, what it's about. And so people have developed, you know, pretty rich science around management of uncertainty in oil and gas. We have not come to that realization well under, in software. Um, we still try to pretend that we have more certainty than, than there is. Yet we know, we have, we have massive amounts of data that shows the uncertainty is huge, yet we're in constant denial over it. And, and uh, I think it gets, it, we're always looking for that silver bullet, that next tool that's going to make that certainty happen, uh, that's going to guarantee us certainty, that next thing that's going to guarantee us predictability, when in fact I think it's an innate element of our business. We, we are knowledge workers. We're creating something. And even though we have an element that looks a little bit like manufacturing, it's not manufacturing. It's research. It's all everything we're doing. If we were developing the same thing that somebody else developed, why wouldn't we just buy it? Right? And, and we don't do that. We're always developing and creating new. And, and that's a very different business and, uh, than, than one that's, that's highly predictable. I think the, the uncertainty leads to a view that you could say that there are five dimensions of the mindset. One is a goal that this is about creating value for the customer, not extracting value for the shareholder. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, it's about enabling others to, uh, to do things rather than controlling them and telling telling them what to do. Thirdly, it's about accepting this uncertainty in the world and proceeding in an iterative fashion towards uh, the eventual solution rather than a plan where you know in advance what you think the solution is. Uh, it's about values of transparency and continuous improvement as opposed to keeping information close to you and hiding it from, from people and thinking that what we have now will succeed in the future. And, and finally, it's communications. It's about conversations, interaction at all levels, rather than telling people what to do. Those five dimensions flow from this uncertainty in a customer-driven world um, in which we don't know what the future is going to look like. And firms that are not in this mode with this mindset are simply not going to survive. Oh, it's interesting. Interaction quality is one of the things that we have also started to discuss much, much more in, in Ericsson now. And um, we have even started to think, should we do a, put a maturity model around it? Because this is, a we found out, is a good uh, communication tool. Yeah, Just to say, okay, level one communication or interaction quality looks maybe like this. Yeah, you, you ask for commitments and you make like a contractual kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. And maybe there is a level, I don't know, five where you are, there's full trust. People are very open hearing things uh, when they get somebody pushing back. It's an invitation to learn and, and so on. So um, you can have a, quite a bandwidth in this and you can really work very professionally in a company with this. Yeah, I mean, this is very solid. I mean, you started by suggesting maybe this is fluff, maybe it's you can't measure it. In fact, this is very, very observable when you in the learning consortium, which um, a group of firms are actually going on site visits to each other and seeing what's going on. I mean, it's instantly <laughs> visible whether you have the right goal, whether you have the right uh, attitude towards the team, whether you have the right iterative approach, whether you have the right values, whether you are communicating in the right way at every level, at the working level, the middle management, the top level, it's instantly visible, measurable. And so I, I think organizations should, in fact, carry out what you're doing at Ericsson and, 
and systematize and say, well, look, in these parts of the organization, it's strong, and in those are parts of the organization, they're lost in the weeds. And, and actually say, well, maybe we can help those people that are lost in the weeds learn from this group over here that's actually got it. But I think that unevenness is where we get into, you know, the most organizations that I've seen have either been sort of this ground up, you know, grew from the bottom type of agile, or it was sort of this top down mandate approach. Where you've got to become agile, and you know we need to go survive. And in both cases of those models, you know that middle management that you were talking about earlier gets pressed in between the, you know, they're the guardians of the old order. They're the guardians of how things got done before, and it's they're they're become at odds, and that unevenness that occurs, where okay. Agile now becoming sort of the buzz, the buzzword that it is, it, it actually produces some interesting reactions when you actually ask somebody, hey, let's go use Agile. You'll either see someone go, well, I don't know what that is, or you'll get somebody who will be absolutely mad. <laughs> and I had one person actually point at me and said, hey, I've been scrummed before. You're not going to do that to me. <laughs> Forget it. And, it sounds and dirty. It does, <laughs> you know. But but I think that you know it's been out long enough now where there's been uh, there's been some good stuff that's been done. We've seen a lot of it being shared, you know, and will be shared through this conference of the week. But we've also seen some stuff that you look at and you go, "Wow, that really wasn't what we intended. That's not what the original signatories intended." Mm -hmm. I think we're also seeing companies, not just those that were born agile and those that are imposing it, but there are other companies where it is a combination of, of top-down support and inspiration with bottom-up yeah. uh, drive. And I think Barclays, I mean, it's still a very early stage in its, uh, uh, in its journey, but when we visited them in, in June, we saw this combination of a chief technology and operations officer inspiring um, agile teams which had been working in tiny islands throughout the organization that couldn't get the support, couldn't remove the impediments, and suddenly found that those people could come out of the shadows and do what they were doing before, but now they could do it openly and officially and get support and drive it across the organization and making some amazing inroads on some of the blockages. I mean, given the, the regulation of banking and the compliance and all of the, mm -hmm. say, Barclays 325-year history, I mean, this is not an easy thing uh, to move that, but you have large numbers of people at the working level who are inspired by this, who wanted to do it before, and now they have a leader at the top who's actually driving it. So there are companies sort of in between those two extremes. Mm -hmm. well, well, the beginning when at, at Intel, when, when we were starting the adoption, I, I, was, a, I was a director of, a, of an organization that started to do the adoption, and I remember we, we had these, this group of peers that would meet together. It was called the Software Directors uh, uh, Council. And I said, hey, we're going to go try to do Agile. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that that was probably the most brutal beating I've ever gotten <laughs> as, a, as a manager at a company. They, how I was going to, you know, the business was going to be, you know, destroyed and all this other things, gloom and doom. And, and reality was, you know, we had already been doing it. We were actually doing really great work. And so actually we went hidden. 
we started bearing you know words in other words so that when somebody would look at us they'd go oh yes you're following the, the corporate process <laughs> in reality we weren't we were we were doing something else in between and so I think what you were saying as far as that support structure of you know maybe not everyone gets it because I think we all are evolving our thinking with it but the reality is is that we all are pushing for a better company we're all pushing for making making working at that company better hmm. and the values that are in the agile manifesto and the principles actually if you read them you go hey this sounds like a good company to work for Mm. Now, hiding the stuff, of course, or shielding, this yeah, sure. is, uh, we see this also as a pattern in, in a number of companies. This is, of course, hmm, it might help you, but this is not a sustainable thing. Sooner or later, this has to surface. And there, we touched the point before, the role of leaders is so essentially important because if leaders don't support this kind of thing, um, it will simply not grow. And uh, that's uh, one of those things um, we need to reach out much, much more to the leaders. And I feel also that the world is a bit polarized at the moment, like, oh, management is bad. Uh, they all brought us in this. I don't know how many tweets or whatever you, you see bashing management. And I think this is just a bit sad because I think we should reach out to each other and try to make it together. And uh, the management, I mean, on the team level, you have a Scrum as a process framework. You have a Scrum master who can take a certificate. Uh, there are people who can help teams to become agile. Where is the coach? Where is the process that we can give to all the people who work in HR, in financial controlling, in business management, the CEO? those those people have much much less help than an agile team and i think and this help needs to look a little bit different so here is where the whole thing starts for me at least and i think those people also live their life in a feeling of a linear world even more so right that's that's their they're they're very much well, like accountants are pretty much looking for I, I can have some predictability here and, and and they figured out how to manage that even though there are also obviously elements of huge amounts of unpredictability in the in the uh, but, but I'm not world, sure they, about that honestly. it depends at the middle I think mm -hmm. I'm thinking more at the middle okay level. at the middle level that's what, their mm -hmm. job is to linearize I think at the higher level yep. on the they high know, levels, they, yeah, they right. know the uncertainty they manage that and so actually yep. I mean, we have this issue saying that well executives really don't get Get agility. They get agility a lot better mm. than that, that that middle level that has been forced into this linear world almost by both sides. Yeah, because they have to deliver all the time, so they are very much they are incentivized uh, to um, to deliver and predict and and all these kind of things. Yeah, they're almost forced that way, even yeah. because it, it, it's sort of an incongruity in terms of you know bottom up. We know there's uncertainty top. We know there's uncertainty, but there there are uncertainties in different parts of the of the <laughs> of the mm. things, and so there's. I guess we just uh, uh, have evolved into this mindset that's, that the the anti mindset of let's try to be linear and controlling, as opposed to let's actually live with reality, and it'll give us far more control than we ever had when we pretended we had it. I, I agree with that. I think the notion of the fact that we do have deadlines. There are, in fact, as the word says, it, this is going to be dead if we do not meet that date. And I think what we've seen, at least in, and this is not to, to, to say bad things about the, the MBA structures and the other things that's being taught, but a, the high dominance of teaching is in that linear 
mindset. And the reality is of understanding that if I have a landing zone, good, better, best, or whatever degree of goodness that can be produced, we tend to be in more or less in this absolute thinking that if I don't meet it by that particular date, then basically we're out of business. Versus, well, what if I delivered 60% of that at that date? Am I still dead? Or are we actually still breathing and doing well no, as I a company? I think you cannot have this discussion up front. Usually there is a customer that might expect something at a certain point in time. And this is like a request. Can we do it or can we not do it? We will find out on the way how good can we predict or say, can we give you hope or not hope? Um, those are the questions that uh, at least bother me every day. And um, that's the hard stuff. Right. But but if you take the goal, and, and there was a great Nova series, if you guys have seen this, I'm not sure if uh, everyone gets Nova, the PBS show, mm -hmm. and it was talking about the delivery of the Mars, the Mars rovers. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was such a great documentary about project management because they understood that if they didn't hit that window of launch, that it was going to become a museum piece. And so if you looked at the way that the program managers and the teams that were delivering were all creating this modular architecture that says, regardless, we're going to launch this. We not, might not have all of the instruments involved, but we're going to deal with the uncertainty by you know, being able to jettison things in and out. And that was a very agile way of approaching that project. And I think the the issue comes down to when we get into those absolutes of it, we everything is top priority. And if you look at some of the, the dealings that I've had over the last couple of years, it's been, you know, when you're delivering microprocessors, we're talking about something that's five years from now. So that's when we, you know, that takes us, we have to build fabs and everything else to be able to go produce these things. And so when you ask a customer, what do you need five years from now? And most are going to sit there and look at you and go, well, I don't know. And they start making stuff up. And as we get closer to the actual real date, then suddenly we say, well, that was kind of a dumb idea. We didn't really need that. But still, we get locked and loaded on this thinking. And the investments, at least in, in my industry, have been big. And so if we reverse course so that at risk, I guess the amount of dollars at risk, we, we, at least inside of Intel, were treating software like hardware. And we couldn't actually have two different risk management systems. We, we had a tough time with that. Yeah, and you see that more and more, that, that all, all hardware has software in it these days. Right. And so, you know, it's, there's, it's all hardware is in software. And, and uh, you've got to deal with that as a, as, a, as a complex system. And I think you have to also understand like what you had at, at, at Intel where you've got huge capital investments. You take a different approach when you've got huge capital investments. There's, a, there's probably a little bit of different structure. And that's what, what being agility is about, is adjusting to the reality of the context that you have. If you've got huge mm -hmm. capital investments, you would take a different approach potentially. On the other hand, if you, you know, like, I think the Mars, the, the Mars rover story is a great one because that, that also demonstrates the value of focus. That team is absolute focused and they knew what they had to do and had a timeline and they, they had a reality check off of what they could deliver and, and uh, building themselves in a made way that they could deliver at any point. Um, they also have the luxury of not having a customer. I mean, the, the real <laughs> world situation is more like your situation where the customer has no idea what they would want in five years' time, alone what they want in five minutes' time. And, and the customers don't know what you can provide. 
and they can't predict how they will react to things. Yeah. So how um, can we all join forces in this unpredictable environment um, to make the best out of the misery we are all in, you could yeah. say. Well, <laughs> well, we, we have to iterate. We have to iterate. Exactly, and then you're, exactly, yeah, it's, there it's, feedback it's, loops, iterations. It's, feedback, it's, it's all about realizing yeah. that this is a learning process, right? Yeah. This is exploratory learning, and that's exploratory learning on you know, the, we talk about inspect and adapt. I think originally that inspect and adapt was primarily on inspect and adapt your process, so it got better and better. But it's really all about, I think this is what I really like about the lean product management, is designing experiments intentionally mm. to to learn from your customers and learn learn what uh, where the value is. Um, that's huge. And and uh, structuring in a way that can do that. Sometimes you can't right? do that. You, know, you, you got one shot like a Mars rover, you get, you know, and so, you don't necessarily have that customer to check with, but, but a lot of software you can you can do do that. And, and in that unity, so if you take you know business people working to, with developers daily, you know the the notion of we're 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 balancing the equation of the business, the technology, and the customer, the usage, and when those things all come together, it's you know that's the love story and all of it. And I think part of the issue with big organizations is we segment out that there's different owners of each of those things and they don't sit together on a normal basis. And when we talk about things like co-location and other things, it's really not about the co-location, it's about, it's about the conversations that are being had. Are there, is the, is the person who's running the business on, you know, in California having a conversation with the development team that's sitting over in Boston or in Poland or someplace else? Are they having those meaningful conversations? And I've seen organizations that be able to do that quite well. But it all comes, I think, a certain that evolving of, of size as we get bigger, I think it just still becomes a challenge. Companies like Spotify is an example. So when they divide it into two, you know, uh, you know, somebody on the on the you know some on the west coast and the east coast of the United States and and their their corporate headquarters being overseas, they go, huh. But you know, the interesting response had always been, well, we're we're evolving it. We're we're working out those things. We're trying to bring it back into that harmony. And if you had to ask them, you know, the the Spotify way. You know, they, they, they basically don't have a name for any of it. It's just the way they do business. It's continually evolving. It's continually evolving, and they're comfortable. And they're comfortable with it. Right. It's continually evolving, and it's not exactly the same in each part of Spotify, right? Right. They, they've intentionally allowed teams to take the autonomy, and they, they, they value autonomy. I think autonomy is huge. It's, right. The teams that have autonomy can can act fast and, and respond. And, and what we're saying, we don't want to give teams the autonomy to do it exactly how I tell them. Mm. I mean, what we're seeing in the learning consortium, the successful firms are, are not prescribing Scrum or Kanban or uh, that, in fact, there is freedom uh, for teams to work out what makes sense in their context. But you also see the Riot Games and the Spotify's finding out that letting everyone do their own thing doesn't work either. Mm -hmm. And you see sort of steady convergence. I mean, when you start having dependencies among multiple teams, having them on different cadences, is a recipe that's uh, not easy to solve. So there is pressure to move towards uh, consistency, but still trying to maintain this autonomy to the team to, to free up. It's a balance between control and autonomy. And the, I mean, the, the new firms like Riot and Spotify are trying to have as little control as possible, but finding you need to actually push down 
yeah. uh, in order to the get big things grow, done. Spotify is exactly in that spot now. The yeah. more you grow, the more you the control part yeah. increases because it's simply the complexity of your organizational system increases. But, but do you think that, that that's an inherent problem again back to the linear thinking? So we learned with DevOps as you know in DevOps architectures that we would do in our code that the better thing was to do is to break it into smaller chunks. Mm -hmm. But instead when we're forming up large organizations we tend to go create big chunks and so I think we have some more learning to do of taking things that we've already learned and patterns we've learned and things like DevOps to how do we now go apply that to our organization so maybe we shouldn't have 5,000 people or organizations yeah. or other structures like that. Okay, but that, that, yeah. So the mindset. Okay, maybe the, I don't know whether I could give their very good response of, on these kind of things because this is structure and structure should follow the uh, needs of what how the organization works. Um, I mean, when you see often it's so that uh, you have teams around a certain product, very often it's product centric. And uh, if you have a lot of autonomy, we see this not only in Spotify and Ericsson is the same within uh, one product, there is a decent amount of, of uh, autonomy. Then you, of course, grow as a company. We discover things like continuous integration, continuous deployment, and so on. And all of a sudden, those products which were running autonomously, they need to integrate on a solution level because you package certain things together and they need to work together. And all of a sudden, you need a solution level integration framework. And then you see, oh my God, now I, have, I got 10 different integ uh, continuous integration frameworks. And fr simply from a tooling and from a flow perspective, it doesn't work. You need to find a solution to those kind of daily challenges, mm. right? Yeah. And, and there is where when you scale things, when you, um, it might be that you need to increase a bit the command uh, or a control part in the sense that you say maybe we all need to have consistent testing frameworks. Yeah, so I, I, I came from an environment where we were doing a lot of acquisitions. And so in, you know, by nature of an acquisition, each, group, each company we were acquiring had a great deal of autonomy and they were great. They were, they were, leading, they were market leaders in their space and uh, that was why they were acquired. Yet the, the company that was doing, the company I was at was doing acquiring, uh, the value proposition was that we were going to integrate all these products mm -hmm. together. So what we, had to, what we found that we had to do, well, a couple of things. One of the things is we found that if we're going to integrate the products, the first thing we had to do was integrate the people. So we, got, we, we actually spent a lot of effort on making sure that we were cross-pollinating um, teams and, and uh, wrote, getting people to travel back and forth, actually brought everyone together to a, to a convention so that we would really get clear about that, that value proposition. But the other thing we did learn, we had to take away some of the autonomy we had to introduce some control mechanism to, to get us towards the value proposition. And we also had to consistently, you know, our, our, it was very clearly identified that our purpose and value and strategy was that we were, gonna, we were going to go to the next level by integrating all these products together. So it was very clear messages repeated all the way through. We reinforced this across the board and, and we pulled the, the control in. And then once we had the, that done, mm. we could actually relinquish that and give them back their yeah. autonomy. Yeah. So it was a step process yeah. that you had to adapt to the process of time. And it, mm. and it was a hugely successful yeah. um, operation. It was, so, it, it but, I think, but I think where the mistake is done, though, is we want to manage everything instead of managing the interface. Yes. So, so if, if, you know, in the systems model, if I have a clear interface of how I integrate to the platform, that's my compliance. That's, you know, that's the governance system. What you do in your box, I, I really don't care. But in order to integrate to this, we have a very nice interface standard that says this is how we do it. 
And, and I think people are not thinking in the systems thinking space when they when they design an org. They're, they're, mm. they're, they're, I think it's more uh, ego-based driven, at least the, my impression has always been. It's about how many people I have working for me and you know how big is my organization and do I have control? <laughs> do I have all of the pieces that I'm gonna be held accountable for under my control? Yeah. But so there, there we kick in with mindset again, because structure yeah. is for me a completely neutral thing. You can have hierarchical structure or whatever structure you like. What brings the structure alive is the people and the mindset of the people. So if you have leaders with that kind of attitude, my status is increasing when I have extremely many people then it creates completely different results uh, than uh, a leader who is thinking, okay, what's the value add of this organization and how can we satisfy customers? And in some of these organizations, when you walk into them, you can see just the visible illustration of this. If the senior manager is sitting in the palatial office in the corner, that's one thing. If the corporate vice president is sitting on a six by two mobile desk exactly the same as the most junior person in the organization and is having conversations across seven levels and a perfectly normal conversation about what is the problem, how would we solve it, what's your thought about this, then you can see that that organization is going to solve problems an awful lot quicker than the guy sitting in his big corner office. The word I think the word that we keep saying and we keep coming back to just to make it explicit is learning. So it's in the learning consortium. It's in the manager who's sitting uh, and having these conversations across seven levels. That's about learning and everybody learning from each other versus the, the mindset of control that one person has the answer. And if we can just find that person with the answer or if one yeah. person can have the organization have everything in control, to have that answer that's the that's the other that's that's the mindset we all went to school with so it's so easy to fall into that mm -hmm. mindset but the other mindset is how do we learn from each other you keep saying that ray is is how do we learn from each other so i think that's a key really a key aspect in a there complex the world your only chance for survival yeah. is learn yes because nobody has yeah. that answer yeah. it's exactly. an organization that yeah. learns fastest will win Yes, and learn to and adapt. This is also you gotta I mean, adapt to. Talk, talk yeah. about the vision of the company or the market we want to capture and so on. Don't ever think you are the only person on the planet having this fantastic idea. All your competitors will have the same uh, idea. So the thing is not to have the better vision. A good vision is of course very very important, but to outlearn your competitors, that's the real challenge nowadays. I think, gentlemen. Thank you very much. This has been a very enlightening conversation and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.